Blog Talk Radio. the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Hi, Patricia. Hello, Bernice. It's so good to be back. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad to have you back. Well, I am... Uh, Patricia is going to monitor the chat room, folks, and post comments concerning our discussion tonight. Well, I'm so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Folks, tonight's show is going to be good. It is about research written in a book entitled A Mind to Stay, White Plantations, Black Homeland. Now, this story was researched and written by Dr. Sidney Nathans that begins in 1844 when a North Carolina planter by the name of Paul Cameron bought 1,600 acres near Greensboro, Alabama. And he sent out 114 enslaved people to cultivate cotton and enlarge his fortune. Sid Nathans is a historian, and he has written many books And so this is going to be a story based on decades of oral interviews with descendants. And the book illuminates how African Americans got land and why successive generations fought to hold on to it for 150 years. But we just don't have Sid Nathans on. Oh, no, we have descendants of Stagville. We have Angela P.A., and she's a Stagville descendant, and her genealogy has traced her direct maternal ancestry to Durham, North Carolina State Historic Stagville Plantation site. Also on this show is Michael Williams, and Michael is an eighth-generation Stagville descendant. But we're not stopping yet. We have <laughs> Teresa Williams Stoudemire. 
Now, Teresa's maternal lines both hail from North Carolina. And as she delved into her Durham family's past, she discovered that her great-grandparents were enslaved on Stadville. So let me give a warm welcome to all of my guests to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for having me. Okay. Great, great to hear from all of you. Well, we're going to start with Dr. Sidney Nathans. So the first question I have for you, and as I started reading the book, what motivated you to write this book? So I started this book, this project, I had no idea it would be a book, in the 1970s, and there were two books that influenced me. One was Alex Haley's book, Roots, in which he used oral history to trace the history of his family. And the other book was a book by Herbert Gutman called The Black Family in Slavery and Freedom, in which he used archival records also to get at the history of the black family. And what I hoped to do was to see if I could use oral history to get at the experience of African Americans who had been sent from the East to the West as part of the great internal migration of the early part of the 19th century, called the Second Middle Passage by historians. And Herbert Gutman identified these 114 people who had been sent from the Cameron Plantation at Stagville to Greensboro, Alabama, and then he said they'd been lost to history. Well, I'm a detective at heart, and I thought, lost? Let's see if I could go out there. Let's see if I could find descendants. Let's see if they had an oral tradition, and let's see if that shed light on the impact of this great forced migration on the African-American family. So I went out. Didn't know where I'd find anybody. Wasn't quite sure where it was. I had only one last name, Hargis, uh, which was the last, only last name in the slave list. Uh, I found it in the census, 1870, and then I got to Greensboro, Alabama, and I found it in the telephone directory. And I called up Alice Hargress, the name had changed, and I started to ask her about this guy, Paul Cameron, who'd sent people out in the 1840s, and she said, that's right. And I said, and then I think some of those people are still there. And she said, that's right. And I realized there was a live oral tradition there. So it was really uh, kind of hope that I might find some people and that they might talk to a, a white historian and that they might have an oral tradition. And everything worked out. So I – and eventually I became known in the community as a roots man. Uh, here was this white Alex Haley. <laughs> Who was who was coming to find out their story? And uh, when people asked who was this white stranger, one person said, "He's come to tell our story to the world." And I took that as my mission. Uh, they opened their lives to me, and all of a sudden, uh, the what, what was dark became light for me. And and wow, and what well, I was, this is just I, amazing. I, just to, just to think that you would get someone on the telephone, and she would say, "That's right." That's right. So tell us what kind of challenges did you encounter, though, in trying to prepare to write this story? <laughs> well, Bernice, the story exploded on me. 
So I was just interested <laughs> to start out with in 1844 to 1864, okay? What was the impact okay. of the forced migration on those people? And what I discovered was that those people, after emancipation, had bought the land, that they had called it Cameron Place. In other words, the name of the planter was the name of the homeland that they had created and that their descendants now owned it. And there's one descendant who's still alive there. So all of a sudden, a 20-year story became a 200-year story, and the cast of characters exploded on me. So trying to figure out how to tell that story and what held it together was the real challenge. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was probably an archival challenge. I had to use the papers of the planter and I had to do the oral histories and then, uh, and then put them together. But, you know, what did it have to? And, you know, I, finally I pulled back and I realized this is a story of people who, who held on to the land. Well, why did they hold on to the land? And then I had to go back through the oral testimony to get at their motivation. So it exploded on me. Uh, and that was a good thing, but it took me 40 years to put it together. <laughs> Oh, that was my next question. How long did it take? Forty whole years to put this well, together. Well, you know, I wasn't I wasn't working on it the whole forty years, Bernice. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, I had, to, I had to take time off to teach <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and to and to figure it out and to transcribe all the oral interviews and to, to do that. But you know, from this from start nineteen seventy eight to publication two thousand eighteen, it was it was forty years. Um, all, oh altogether. my goodness. Oh my goodness! So, well, I, so I was lucky. I, you know, the question was, who was gonna, what was gonna, you know, be the end? Was I gonna end first, or was the book gonna end first? Uh, and, uh, <laughs> wow! So, tell us about Paul Cameron. Well, Paul Cameron was inherited uh, a plantation. He was a third generation planter in North Carolina. Uh, and he was a man whose father did not want him to go to become a planter. His father wanted to be a lawyer, but his father happened to be the best lawyer, uh, the most prominent banker in the state, and he figured he'd be overshadowed. So he was constantly uh, in his father's shadow. And so he decided that uh, rather than just tend the plantation in North Carolina, he would prove himself himself to be a um, person who could do something on his own. He would send people out to Alabama, and he would have his own plantation in the cotton country, though he would own it absentee. Uh, but he he was a, a person who inherited from his father and his grandfather a notion that you kept families together. And not all planters did this, but it was a trade-off. One of the descendants put it this way. She said, they, they stole your labor, but they kept you together. So that was that was the trade-off, and he wanted to transfer that model to Alabama, and to some extent, I think he was able to do that. But uh, and and he sort of keep the implicit family pact, uh, but he wasn't able to sustain sustain that over a longer period of time. Finally, the lure of money and possibility of, of becoming a, a a really very successful planter overcame that. But you know, I think he I, that 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 was the kind of person he was. And by the way, he had red hair <laughs> and a temper when he was an, an undergraduate. He had to control that too. Uh, but he was always trying to prove himself. So when you began to you know just get into Paul Cameron's head, and you said he had to prove himself because I, I noticed he was he was really into buying up land and and making money. Uh, where did you 
find all of your different resources to kind of pull this story together? So there were two resources that anchored the book. Uh, one were the papers of the Planter family, and especially those of Paul Cameron, at the Southern Historical Collection at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. There are 30,000 letters there, and those include hundreds and hundreds of, of lists of enslaved people and also include overseers' reports. So I had all those, and I and I, I, I went to that collection so many times that I thought there were 90,000 letters, and they finally told me there were only 30,000. I said, well, that must have been because I went through it three times, um, that I thought there were 90,000 letters. So I had that. And, and he wrote his father very often, and he, thank goodness he had a clear handwriting, just the opposite of his father. So I was able really to, to get enormous detail on that. He also corresponded with overseers. So those are, that's the archival source. And then the oral testimony uh, was the interviews that I did over a number of years with people in, in Alabama. So I, I, I put those two together. So how accessible? I mean, you have the 30,000 letters, but how many people did you get the oral interviews from? You know, I never counted. There must have been uh, maybe 30 people altogether. I I would say that for me, the great source, the great, there, there were two great pieces of luck for me. Uh, and mm-hmm. then, and you know, and within two days, right? I called Alice Harkless, and she said, "That's right, that's right. Come on out, we'll talk." So it turns out she's the community leader, and she's became my gatekeeper. When she said to other people, "Now you talk to that white boy," <laughs> they did. Uh, it, that's that's just the way the community worked. So, but she, when I pressed her on the wayback story, she said, "Well, I don't know." And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm sunk. And she said, for that, you have to talk to Louie. And it turned out Louie Rainey, who lived right down the property, right down the hill, was the oral historian of the community. So he became my main source. And then I branched out from there to talk with other people in the community. Uh, and I would say maybe 30 altogether uh, that I talked to, some in, in Birmingham, some out of state, but mostly in, in the area. And I, wow. I spent the year, I, and then I transcribed everything. So I didn't have to go back mm-hmm. over the tapes. I, t- I took a year and transcribed all of the interviews uh, so I could work with them rather than going over and over again on the tapes. Right. Now I'm getting a question that they want you to repeat the, the resource papers that you found. Uh, you said the historical collection. Yeah, so, so the, the, the collection is the Southern Historical Collection at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And okay. the papers are the Paul are the are the Cameron family papers. And there are thirty thousand the documents there. Mm-hmm. Now yep. when you spoke to Alice and Louis, did <clears throat> they have any written documentation or was it all oral history? They had some photographs. Uh, there was a family Bible, uh, which is you know important for genealogists, and and it had it had some information in it. They also had some newspaper clippings because there had been reporters who had come out there uh, maybe 20 years before and and talked to some people. But other than that, there was no 
written documentation, no written documentation. So I, I really relied on oral testimony from the African-American descendants and then the written testimony from the overseers and Paul Cameron himself. And with this oral history, did you find that what they were saying and what you were finding in the records were consistent with the source of the story? Well, so I went out with a rather naive idea of oral history, you know, that it would be they would just tell it like it was. It would mirror reality. And there was some there was some lore there. Uh, that did not match the record. For example, that uh, Paul Harches, who was a main character in the story, came out on a coach with the with the planter, uh, unlike all the others who walked uh, with an overseer, and that he got a, a bag of gold when he was left in North Carolina, left in Alabama. So, I, what I what I was able to do was to go back and forth between the oral testimony and the written record to find out how this story might be plausible and a, a reconfiguration of the facts, just like a kaleidoscope takes images and and reconfigures them. And and I decided that that in some ways what I was doing, especially for the way back time, for the 19th century, I was doing a mix of lore and oral history. And I like to call it laurel history, uh, L apostrophe O-R-A-L history. So what I tried to do was not to dismiss what didn't match up with the facts, but to see the way in which it was a reconfiguration of the of the facts as they came through in the archive, and I thought that worked pretty well. I thought that worked pretty well. Nobody was the these, this testimony was not completely off base. There was a, there were always truths embedded in the lore. Uh, but after 150 years, you're not, you know, in the retelling and the and the retelling of the retelling, you're not going to get straight up oral history. This is not tape recorder history. Once we got into the 20th century and on into the 21st century, then it was more more like the conventional oral history. Mm-hmm. Laurel mm-hmm. history. I like that. I didn't put it in the book, but I like that. <laughs> Laurel history. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, what what struck you about the opportunity for former Cameron enslaved families to own land in the place where they labored as former slaves? You know, that's that's exactly what I thought. Uh, that is, my goodness, what are they doing staying on that land? And what I had to learn, you know, was that they became uh, attached to the, the land in the sense that they had earned the wealth that came from that land. They became attached to the land in the sense that their families had worked on that land. But more importantly, you know, this was a means to keep their families together after emancipation. Uh, the younger members of these families often scattered, you know, and they were they were someplace else. Uh, and this was a way for a core of people to farm that land, keep it together, and hopefully be able to purchase it so that they were not at, at, they were not uh, on the road. Uh, they were not because the alternative would have been to, to be some other place. Uh, so the kind of feeling that I had about, gee, why would you stay on your own plantation? Why would you stay in a prison? Let's put it that way. To an analogy, you know, it was just all wrong. Uh, and that was a surprise to me. And then the the use that they made of the land was just to intertwine it with family sustaining you know went on into the the 20th and the 21st century you know even after the young people left 
which they did in the 50s and the 60s. Alice Hargris and the older generation held onto that land so that they would have a place to come back to if it didn't work out for them to be in California, if it didn't work out for them to be in Detroit. And ha- and four of her eight children did come back. Uh, so I think I think they they had their own meaning of the land, which I had to come to understand. Yes, it. I, you know, I, I I just read it and say, isn't that amazing? I mean, how the Civil War had a major impact on everyone. Tell tell us about the Civil War and the I guess the the surprise <laughs> as to what happened to the family members that were sent away. And then all of a sudden, it looks like they're coming back. So in the Civil War was, from the planter's vantage point, uh, uh, let's say high risk. And the owner who sent people out to Alabama, and he also sent people out to Mississippi, the closer the Union troops got to his plantations, uh, led him to the decision to send these people back to North Carolina, where, uh, at least for a time, they would be safe from the Union troops. You know, Sherman went from west to east, uh, and his troops were the, were the real uh, risks. So... So they they basically the, they reversed the migration pattern. Uh, they were sent out in the 1840s. They were sent back in the 1860s, uh, mm-hmm. not for their protection, but for his protection. So and then some of them were on the on the North Carolina plantation in 1865 when the war ended, and and uh, Sherman's troops came right there, and and. Paul Cameron discovered that the people that he thought should be grateful to him for keeping families together, et cetera, you know, all of a sudden he realizes, hey, we, they weren't grateful to be slaves, okay? It was nice of him to keep them together. That was good. Uh, but now they were independent. And so that was one disruption of the Civil War. And then the other was that some of the people decided that uh, when he basically decided, oh, well, I can't handle this. I'm going to evict everybody. Some people went back to Alabama. Um, uh, and even some people went back to Mississippi after the Civil War. So there was a lot of migration uh, in in that sense, but you know, the whole the whole system was disrupted by the Civil War. And then, as far as the the land was concerned, you know, after the Civil War, then then uh, productivity goes down, land values go down, and Paul Cameron is finally put into a position where he. It's gonna, if he's going to sell the land, he's going to have to do something that he really didn't find particularly tasteful, uh, which was to sell it to black people who were willing to buy it and on, on terms that they were able to afford. So it was it was you know, profoundly revolutionary, and he knew that right from the get-go uh, there, but he experienced it as well. Revolutionary from his vantage point and revolutionary from theirs. Yes, it was. Well, Sid, for, for a few minutes, we, we're going to stop talking to you. This is fascinating, but let's hear from some of the descendants. So, Michael Williams. Michael Williams. Yes. You're on? Yes. Okay, Michael. um, Okay. So, how many generations can you trace back to Paul Cameron's plantation in North Carolina? I can trace back about about back to my sixth great-grandparents. And um, on one line, and then on another line, I could trace back to my fifth great grandparents. And so, uh, through my Goodlow family line, uh, that's where Teresa and Angela um, connect 
And so, and they'll be able to talk about that a little bit later, but pretty much um, there was Matthew Goodlow and his wife Molly, and they had several children. Well, Teresa and Angela descends from Melinda, one of the daughters, and I descend from the eldest, well, one of the elder uh, children, uh, Daniel Goodlow. I descend from him. So, Michael, what what junction in your life occurred to spark this whole interest to investigate your family enslaved in North Carolina? Well, I'm an adoptee, a New York adoptee, who has been in reunion for uh, over 20 years. And the biggest challenge um, that I was faced with was an adoption, a closed adoption decree. It was the greatest challenge because when you're dealing with a closed adoption decree, uh, what ensued was that my entire birth records, um, health reports, information was just concealed and revamped altogether. So it wasn't until I became, I graduated from high school, and um, as a young man, I decided to pursue the chance for reunification. And around this time of year was specifically the Thanksgiving Eve of 1996. I used a $5 calling card that had 20 minutes on it. And with the little bit of information that I knew uh, about my uh, biological background, I thought to call directory assistance. And I accumulated about 40 numbers. And I randomly just and really blindly just went through each and every one of the numbers that I uh, received. And you know what's interesting is that during that whole process, I called into the operators like four different times. And each time I, well, the last time I called in was the first operator who I got. And she said, wait a minute, I remember you. You called and asked for 10 numbers. Now, I can't give you no more numbers. Now, these are the last <laughs> set of numbers I'm going to give you, and that's it. I'm going I'm to flag this. And I said, yes, ma'am. I said, well, ma'am, the reason why I'm doing it is because I'm trying to find my family and, and you know, just a, it's a really big deal. And so she gave me the last set, and there I went calling each number on that uh, list. And the last number was the jackpot. It was my immediate maternal family, and I, was, and I spoke to my first cousin. And through that reunion, um, later that year, around Christmas time of 1996, um, I was able to meet my birth mother, um, the late Joanne Harth, and all of my uh, immediate family members, and we began to develop a relationship that has now um, lasted for over 20 years. But seven years into that reunion, my birth mother died. And we never got a chance to talk about family history. And it's interesting what funerals can do because everybody comes out the woodworks. And I mean everybody. <laughs> and so there was Cousin Butch, and Cousin Butch was really the first person who signaled that, you know, there were some other relatives in Boston or what have you that I might want to reach out to, such as Aunt Audrey, and she's also deceased. But I was so pleased that I've had a chance to meet her because it was through her 
that I was able to network my way to a cousin in North Carolina who actually um, kept the first printing of the family pedigree chart that would be key in helping me understand my connections to Stagville. And so when I contacted um, Lomax, uh, it was the same method that I used to find my media families. Once again, I'm using the white pages. That, well, in this case, I'm using whitepages.com. And, um, and I found his number and dialed him up, and he said, hey, you know, um, we're related. This is how we're related. And at the end of the call, he said, well, I can send you the family pedigree uh, chart that my mother created. And I said, really? And, I, of course, I gave him my address and everything, and I really didn't believe that he was going to do it. I really didn't. I just thought he was just being nice. And he really did. Four days later, I looked at my mailbox, and there was this huge packet, package, and inside there was the family pedigree chart, about 10 leaflet pages. It looked like someone wrote on a legal pad, or at least it was the size of a legal pad, and um, the mid-sized legal pad. And, of course, it had all of the genealogy. I was looking for, I could see my birth mother, I could see her siblings, I could see, you know, everything beyond them. And then there was another document, um, which was um, prepared in 1983. And I guess there was some years between the time that I, that the family pedigree chart was prepared and the actual 1983 report was prepared because um, the document that Cousin Lomax gave me regarding the family pedigree was, was written in 1974. And so I can see in 1983, folks were trying to put legs to the research. And on page two, I could see the caption that says, the legend that good loads were cam and stock. And then it goes on hmm. to say how the connection to Stagville was, was a rumor. So I sought out to prove one way or the other that we either had a connection or we didn't. Well, as I went through the genealogical process, I was able to follow along with the pedigree chart that um, that was prepared. And I forgot to mention this. I've learned through Cousin Lomax that his mother's name was Nell Goodlow Wilson, and she was born in 1898. And she's the one, the author of the 1974 pedigree chart. And so I followed what she wrote. And then, of course, by the time I made it to the 1870 census, I began to, to, to see the family groupings. And I noticed that there was uh, Mariah Justice. And I said, wow, that's interesting, Mariah Justice. And so as I began to kind of, you know, continue working with that, looking on the um, internet to see if there was maybe a website for Stagville, I found it. And I went to www.stagville.org, uh, I believe, or .com, and they have a genealogy um, tree on there of all the original families at the Durham site. And the justice name was there. Well, do you know they had it set up where as if you found your ancestor, you could click on the hyperlinks, and that meant that you were going back, you know, a generation. 
I found Mariah Justice, and I knew I was looking at my Mariah Justice because when I went back to the 1870 census, she's listed at the age of 30 in 1870. So I'm thinking, well, she's had to have been born somewhere around 1840, right? Would you know bingo? Mariah Justice born 1841 in that area. And then I went further back, and then it went to her mother, Amy Jordan, and Solomon Justice. Then it stopped at Amy Jordan and continued on with Solomon Justice, and then it went back to Mary. Then it went back to Big Esther and Phil, names that I eventually discovered in Dr. Herbert Goodman's book, um, The Black Family and Slavery. On page 183 to like 189, I could see all of these names coming together. These were my Stagville folks. And it didn't take long until I had a chance to actually visit uh, Stagville in uh, 2014. And they showed me the actual Justice Homestead, which today is listed on the National Historic Registry. And um, it was absolutely profound, uh, Benice. It was, it was, I was, I was lost for words. But when I thought I had no history, the perseverance and the relationship building led not only to my a chance encounter to visit the site, but also to meet, you know, uh, Sid and Angela and uh, Teresa because DNA was also included in that journey. So well, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. So when did you first learn about the book, A Mind to Stay? I learned about A Mind to Stay, um, truthfully, upon my last visit to Stagville, I went to the gift shop and they had it there. But the person in front of me, the patron that was in front of me was like, oh, she was raving about to free a family. Uh, the journey of the Mary Walker story. And, of course, um, that story was told to me as well as I went on the little tour they give. And so I was inclined to get that first. And I said, well, if I like to free a family, then I'm definitely going to get a mind to stay. And I absolutely loved to free a family because it was just an incredible story. I think you featured that on your show uh, some years ago. Several years ago, right. Yes, so your listening audience. So, can go were back your and family members a part of uh, when you read a mind to say? Did you learn mm-hmm. of any of your family members that were part of the group that uh, went on to Tunica, Mississippi? Or what, tell us about your family and their migration story, if they have one. Sure. Well, my connection to a mind to stay is really an indirect connection because there's a character in the book um, who was uh, revered as a highly respected uh, enslaved field hand. His name is Paul Hargis, and yes. um, he's, mm-hmm. he's a central character in the book. And so when I began to look through the Freedmen's Bureau records, um, I was able to uh, look at an 1866 labor contract. And not only did I get a chance to see the signature of my third great grandfather, Daniel Goodloe, but I also saw Paul Hargis' signature as well on that same document. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, my gosh, like this is an immediate connection. 
you know, a, a vivid connection, you know, to the story that Sid so uh, pointedly, you know, writes about in the book. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And um, and I remember, you know, as we were preparing for the show, you know, I told him about that. And we were like, wow, look at that. It was amazing to see yes. that. I would like to think. I would like to think that maybe Paul Hodges and my uh, and my Daniel Goodloe, you know, they kind of, you know, were shooting the breeze, you know, while they was waiting online to sign that document because, <laughs> you know, they were, they were trying to find work. So, you know, <laughs> so I just right. would like to imagine well, that they had a nice conversation. That's right. Well, thank you so much for kind of sharing your, your journey with us from the uh, – knowing that you were adopted to the reunification of your family. So we're going to take a quick break and come back and hear from Teresa. So just a quick break, everyone. Welcome back to Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover Howard. And you can join us every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where we will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, in the opening of this show tonight, you heard from Dr. Sidney Nathans, and he is the author of A Mind to Stay. And then you heard from Michael Williams, who shared with us his story. Well, right now we're going to hear Teresa Williams-Sotomayor, and she is a descendant, and she's going to tell us about her family connection to A Mind to Stay. Teresa, welcome to the show. So how many generations... Can you trace back to Paul Cameron's plantation in North Carolina? Well, um, during my studies and research um, and talking with the people at the Stagville Plantation who have a professional genealogist on staff, she indicated to me that I was probably connected to Stagville because I was in the original group that came there when Richard Benahan, the first planter, slave master, um, started that plantation. 
in um, 1776 or 77, 1777. So he married a woman, and she brought five slaves with her to the marriage and to Stagville. So my mind was blown when I found out that we possibly traced back to the United States and to to Stagville um, since 1770s. And I just couldn't believe that because that was um, their existence was before the Civil War in 1764 when this woman, Mary, inherited these slaves. So my mind was just blown to know that before America was a nation, it was a colony, and my people have traced back to that time. And then they were in the original batch that came to Stagville. So I was just blown away, and I was so excited. I thought, oh, maybe I'll find my connection back to Africa, because that really was one of the original intents behind my research, was to find out more about my family and see if I, like um, Roots, could go all the way back to Africa. So when we got back to 1764, I was, like, elated, thinking that I was going to be able to find that magic um, bullet and discover where in Africa I came from. Wow. So tell me this, when did you actually start your genealogical research journey? Well, actually, I started in probably the 1990s, um, Mm -hmm. and I was doing it the old-fashioned way. And uh, Sid and I talked about this the other day, looking at microfilms at the um, Mormon um, centers, And at that time, I was living in Portland, Oregon. So I would go over to the center. I would do my research. I would tell them what documents I wanted. And then they would either have it on microfilm or go all the way back to uh, Salt Lake City and send that information to me. That was very tedious. So I quit. (laughs) (laughs) And then I started back earnestly in 2007 when I joined Ancestry.com. And um, another cousin of mine and I, we decided that we would tag team. And, I mean, we were so excited. We would call each other in the middle of the night. I found something. I found something. And our phones and our computers were dinging. And so we really got into it in about 2007. So did you find your family leaving North Carolina and being sent further south? Or did they stay in North Carolina? My family stayed in North Carolina, but um, after the Civil War, when there was mayhem and bedlam at the North Carolina plantation that Sid just alluded to, um, my family was one of the 12 families that left North Carolina and went to Tunica, Mississippi, to work on one of their other plantations that they had opened up uh, uh, previously. They opened up the Alabama one first, and then they opened up one in um, Tunica, Mississippi. And my folks, after we were freed uh, due to the Civil War, um, they went back and worked in Tunica, Mississippi, and were found in the 1870 census there, along with 
the Camerons on the same page as them. And that just astounded me. I could not put my hands around that. I wouldn't. And in the book, A Mind to Say, Sid, he answered that. He explained when they went, that contract that Michael talked about, they signed a contract, and they went back to work in Tunica, Mississippi, for the Cameron um, folks on their plantation there. But that plantation was eventually closed down, and then by 1880, they were back in North Carolina. And you could actually trace their movement. I mean, looking at their timeline, you could see that they they went to they were sent to Tunica, and then they went yes. back. And how yes. did you do that? I went through the census records because I couldn't find them. Everyone said, "Look in the 1870 census." That's really a very important um, census to find the newly freed folks. So I looked all over North Carolina for them, and I don't know how I wound up. Maybe it was the computer sent up this remote message, and I just started looking at it, and I went, oh, my God, there's my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother in Mississippi as a family, Um, Phoebe and um, Logan, Dicey and Mackenzie in Tunica, Mississippi. And then in 1880, they were back in North Carolina, still as a family group, plus their grandparents, Logan's um, mother and father, uh, Lem and Grace Haskins, they were back with them in 1880. They did not go to Mississippi. So we have a question coming out of the chat room, and they're just questioning you about the Mormon records. And yes. that you you found these records at one of the family history centers, and they said, no, was this on microfish? No, I did not find that information. You asked me how I started my genealogy okay. search. Okay. And that yes. was in the, the first period, but that didn't yield me much. It was very tedious. Okay, that's I what they wanted back to, to know. It. Yeah, I came back to it maybe 10 years later and went through Ancestry, and because of that, that information was now available electronically through those records that I was sending off for in the old system, it was there in the system, I was able to put those facts together. So, Teresa, did your family end up owning any land in North Carolina? Yes, they did, and that was one of the things that we were really eager to find out. Um, and I think, I don't remember the exact date, uh, but I believe it was eighteen, late 1870s. Um, my great-great-grandfather, um, um, my great-grandfather, um, there was a, a record of, of land ownership in Durham. So... It does appear that we began to amass um, land in the family right after we were um, freed, and that that made me feel really, really proud. Oh yes, indeed, I can imagine. Now I want to go and, all the way back to something you told us when we when you first started talking, and that your family, according to a researcher, uh, was 
the part of the original family in the mm-hmm. 1700s. Do you have names yes. of those family members? Yes, I do. Um, their names were Ned and Esther. And they had a daughter wow. named Betty. And um, Vera, who is the genealogist, the genealogist on staff, she um, gave me that information. And that was really interesting to me because I knew that the book, the other book that um, Sid had written um, to free a slave, yes. uh, the Mary Walker story, um, yes. they were in some of those, or those early uh, enslaved families read that book immediately. I read that from page one to the end so fast, trying to see if there might be some kind of a snippet about my family. But I was very disappointed to find out that they were not mentioned at all in that book. But I hit pay dirt in the other book, A Mind to Stay, um, that Sid um, wrote when I saw that they were in those that group of families that went west after the Civil War. That is wonderful. And there's another question. Do you know if any of your family members were in the United States Colored Troops? You know what? I don't know for sure, but I think Michael said that that might very well be possible. He had run across a recent document that indicated that there was um, possibly um, membership um, uh, in the uh, in the arm in the in the colored troop or somewhere in the Civil War fight. I'm not really sure. We haven't come upon that documentation, or I haven't seen it. But we're working on that right now. Okay, okay. Do you have anything else you want to share with us before we talk to Angela? Well, just one other thing that made me really, really get very sentimental is there was also another um, collection right after the Civil War um, the Freedmen Bureau set up a system where people who had been married for years could come forth and um, have the state recognize their marriage and as I was going through those records I found my great great grandparents names in there that they had acknowledged publicly that they had been together, you know, for many, 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 many years. And that just really warmed my heart because we heard so many things about that black families not being able to stay together. At that time, I didn't know about the Cameron's philosophy about keeping families together. But the fact that they had taken the time to go in and say, this is my husband, this is my wife, and we've been together for the last 20 years. For me, that was very warming to my heart. Oh, yes. Just, just to see and have the document, which is wonderful. Yeah. It, mm-hmm. I, and I'm so glad that you found that document because, yes, yeah. I can imagine just, just well, how that feels. And the other thing is that I said my uh, ancestors, they were named Cameron. That was their last name. When they were married, they went by Cameron. But after the Civil War, they changed their last name to Haskins. Oh, okay. And, and I found that very interesting. So that is in line with a lot of other people. They may have been Cameron's at one point in time, but, or like Paul Hargis, 
who went from Paul Hargis and his family changed it to Paul Hargis or whoever changed it along the way. But I found that interesting as well. I, you, you're right. It is interesting just to to know you could actually trace those names as they have gone into the transition of changing to something else too. But you know you're right. dealing with the same people. Yes. So let's talk to Angela Pa. Hi, Angela. Hi. So Angela. So how many generations can you trace back to Paul Cameron's plantation? Mine mirrors Teresa's exactly because we are second cousins. And, oh, okay. Um, yeah, so it dates exactly and mirrors exactly like Teresa's. And we also have had the DNA match on Ancestry.com that we're second cousins. So that was really exciting and interesting. So uh, do you and Michael, uh, you said Teresa, but uh, is Michael connected to you all through DNA also? I could not find Michael. (laughs) He and I have discussed it, and he said that's not completely uncommon. Um, But we, we definitely think that there is a DNA match. Also, since we're talking about DNA, have you traced any other DNA matches back to Paul Cameron's plantation network through, uh, let's say, North Carolina, Alabama, or Mississippi? I have not. Um, It's been really interesting. I've been getting a lot of pings about, you know, oh, I see we're a DNA match and how are we connected? So there are a lot of conversations circling and being sparked, which is really interesting, um, especially for those that have their pictures associated with their profile and they are non-blacks. And so that's been really interesting to connect with these people and try to pinpoint. And so um, some of them are saying that they, you know, it's been rumored some of their family is from North Carolina. And so it's just, a, I guess, a matter of continuing to weed through and needle down to figure out who may be who. And I, I think it also ties into what T- Teresa uh, mentioned about some of our ancestors' names being Cameron. Um, I find it really interesting that Sid mentioned in his book that Paul Cameron had red hair. And some of uh, my cousins and, and, and I have freckles, and some of them have freckles and red hair. So I find it very interesting. I would love to possibly get a connection like that on Ancestry at some point or any other DNA database, but I'm not 100% certain if some of the Camerons have been tested. So when we're talking about just your genealogical research, what was the key turning point for you in expanding the knowledge of that you have discovered about your family? Um. It's been an ongoing process, um, like Sid said, 40 years, and Michael, I think, said 17, and Teresa touched on 10 plus. It's been a really long journey. Um, I haven't experienced the whole microfilm piece of it, but um, everything is online, and things are so much easier now and accessible, and um, it was just really like, okay, let me go ahead and do this and see 
where I come from, see if I could link to someone, um, because I didn't have a lot of oral history in my direct, you know, communications with my family and so on and so forth. And so I think getting that DNA testing helps put some of the pieces together. You know, Michael had an experience where he was, you know, adopted, and so he didn't really know his family. Well, I knew my family, but everything um, was very kept quiet, kept under wraps. And so I think that DNA confirmation really has opened up a lot of doors and enlightenment to a lot of questions. But how has your family reacted to the knowledge of having a connection to to this book, A Mind to Stay? Um, I must be honest, some are very receptive. Some find it interesting and intriguing. Um, some haven't been very responsive. And, you know, I just kind of liken it to, you know, we are who we are. We like what we like. Um, everyone is not going to accept your willingness to delve into the past. And, you know, you just have to um, go with your heart, go with your mind, and do what's right for you. And for me, that's something I was always interested in. I was always intrigued. Um, like Sid and Teresa talked about, when Roots came out, it just kind of lit a flame and a fire within me. And I, too, wanted to trace it all the way back to Africa. So um, it's been mixed review. It's been a mixed review. Well, I mm-hmm. want to go back to Sydney for a minute. So that Sydney, just tell us, I mean, you've had a chance to to listen to some of the descendants. And of course, you had 40 years of information to put together. Are you starting to find other descendants coming forth to share information with you? Yes. Uh, they either come to share information with me uh, or they come to get information from me. But, you know, I get emails every once in a while uh, from people who have read the book and I'm a descendant and can you tell me more about this line or tell me more about that line. Uh, so it's not so much they're coming more with, with more information that I haven't had. I, I think I've exhausted that. Uh, but but in a sense, you know, they know I'm now the repository for uh, the family history of a lot of people. I have to say, you know, as I was listening to Teresa and Michael and Angela I'm inspired all over again. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just so wonderful that now uh, their work is going on. I think it's just fabulous that Stagville has now not only been a historic site where people can visit, but also has a genealogist on site, and they put so much on the web so that you can go there and get this information um, when you when you want to do research, and that they're there to help you out. I, I just think it's it's fabulous, and and, uh, and now I have a relationship with them. <laughs> With, as well, I'm not a DNA cousin, but I guess I'm a telephone cousin or an email cousin now. Uh, uh-huh. there. And, and I found in my own work, you know, that I became an adopted member of the family. I, Judith White and myself, my wife and myself, go to family reunions, um, and uh, have, I'm listed as an adopted son by Alice Harcliffe. And you know, so so when when he was talking about relationships, I was thinking, well, God, you know, I've never had such wonderful relationships. Uh, so, and the same is true for the the church that the people from Stagville founded, the Cameron Grove Church, uh, where I go and am an adopted member of the honorary member of the church. 
so it's it's really terrific, uh, I think. Uh, and uh, I don't I don't go back and forth, uh, but I'm on the, on email and pinging and that sort of thing. That's beyond me. But I know I know when Teresa said I found something, you know, and they uh, they do this in the middle of the night, you know. I know that feeling. So I'm inspired all over again listening to them. Yes, and you mentioned family reunions. For all of you, I mean, how often do you have family reunions? <clears throat> well, for the for for my family, my adopted family, it's, it, it's every two years. Now, Alice Hargis, who died in 2014, uh, just before her 100th birthday, she was the matriarch, and the family reunions were just every two years. Now that's, that's really, I think, uh, not the case anymore. But as long as she was alive... Uh, that was that it, it was it was every two years and it was different places not just Alabama one was in New Orleans one was in Mississippi uh, so they they moved it around to be and one was in Detroit to be closer to people who have uh, gone to different parts of the country but wanted to be at these family reunions. Mm-hmm. And then Michael, how did you connect with Teresa and Angela? <laughs> Well, that's a good. That's a great question because um, through the DNA, um, I connected with Teresa, and we showed up as fourth to fifth cousins. And I remember it was on a Saturday night. I was in the, cu- the kitchen, fried up some chicken. Mm-hmm. I pulled out the potato salad. I just had a taste, and I said, "Let me call Teresa." Because by this point, we had you know been uh, exchanging messages uh, through the uh, pla- uh, messaging platform. And um, she gave me her number, and I called her up and I said, "Teresa, we now we gotta needle down and see where this connection is." So I pulled out um, the family pedigree chart that uh, Nell Goodlow Wilson had prepared in 1974, and I began to go down the generations. And, and Teresa said, "Stop!" And I said, "What?" She said, "Go back." And I said, "Henry Russell, Mary Dicey Haskins." She said, "Those are my ancestors." And that's wow. how we knew right then and there on the phone, right there. And I immediately sent her an electronic copy of the um, of the uh, family booklet. And so now not only does Teresa have um, that uh, copy, but also Angela has that copy as well. It was so oh, weird. Oh, so somebody was that. doing a happy dance, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What were you saying, Teresa? It was so eerie when he um, sent that to me, and then all of a sudden there are my people on there now. They basically went into more detail with the ones that stayed behind in North Carolina. I noticed that my grandmother, who migrated um, in the 1910s from Durham up to New York, um, they just had her name there. But but Angela's grandmother, who was the baby sister, all of her children were mentioned. And so it just gave me chills to see it in paper and to be connected. I bet you. Well, you have a question. They want you to repeat DC's or Dicey's last name. Oh, um, her name was Dicey Haskins. Um, and, um, and then she became Dicey Russell. So she was Dicey Haskins Russell. Her maiden name was Haskins or Cameron, if you want to go way, way back. 
But um, yeah, so it was Dicey Cameron, no Dicey Haskins Russell. Okay, so those of you who are looking for your DNA connection, <laughs> you want to look for Dicey Haskins Russell. Look for Cameron. And some of the locations, would you say Tunica, Greensboro? Yeah, they, they were in Tunica, Mississippi, and in Durham, in um, Orange County, um, Stagville, and then in Durham. So we have another question for all of you. Since Sid has already written a mind to stay, the question is, are any of you working on a book to tell your story? That's, that's a good question. <laughs> is it working progress? We did jokingly say something about a Netflix special, so yeah. we don't want to get too, <laughs> we don't want to right? get too much away on that one. <laughs> well, you are being encouraged to tell your side of the story and to motivate others to get involved in and just looking at what's happening at Stagsville. And, you know, Sid, you mentioned this wonderful collection uh, at the university, and it's a, a resource that everyone should, should check out. Well, do any of you have anything else you would like to share with the listeners tonight? I would like I would to like, say something, oh, too. Get, get oh, through. sorry, Mike. No, 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 no. We are so fortunate that we were on our our just our ancestors were on Stagville because there's so much information relative to other plantations and other situations involving slavery where there's some documentation. Most people were not on such a large plantation with maybe 800 to 1,000 enslaved people. When I went there, I was touched that I could walk on that ground, and I just felt all those spirits there. So we're really lucky that we have that place as a marker in our history because not very many others had that because the plantations weren't that large and weren't as organized and efficient as the one our folks uh, lived on. That's it. Okay, and Michael? Well, I wanted to say that um, Vera has been a tremendous help. Uh, her name was mentioned earlier. She is the um, the lead genealogist uh, on site. And what's beautiful about what Stagville offers is that they offer tours that are really great. And if any of your listening audience members gets a chance to visit Stagville, um, they have to see the great barn. What I've learned is that Solomon Justice was a carpenter, and he was also a cooper. And so with that, he was a part of the team who built that barn, which was built at about 133 feet long and about 33 feet high. And it was built in five months. You have to see this edifice, and it's sitting on its original foundation. I was floored. Well, the other thing about Stagville, for those who come to visit, is that the 
cabins that people, enslaved people lived in are still standing and part of the historic site. And they're very unusual. They're two-story cabins. There are four of them. They have brick nogging, which is to say they're not just wooden walls, but brick in between. So you get some sense, uh, because those cabins are standing and have been preserved, of how people lived. And then you can use all this information that's coming out, as well as your imagination, to imagine the lives of the people uh, who were in those dwellings. You know, for for me, I think uh, it's really been a, a, a thrill to do this work. You know, and as Angela said, not everybody wants to know or talk about what enslavement was like, and for good reason. You know, this was this was not a picnic um, for people, but they survived. They strived, they stayed under the radar when they could, and then uh, they flourished uh, afterwards. At least their aspirations came out afterwards uh, when emancipation came. And for me, this, the the constant theme, at least for this particular plantation and for all of us, was the attempt to keep families together and to value families. And so I give a I give a shout out to those two books that came out in 1976, to Alex Haley, who made Going for Your Answer ancestors' stories, something you should talk about and could do, and inspired other people to do white and black, and also to Herbert Gutman, who took a stand that the enslavement did not destroy the black family, nor did it destroy the aspiration for families to stick together and somehow uh, to hold together. And to me, that's those are the themes that animated me to see if I could find out what happened to the people in Alabama who were further stressed by this forced migration. And to those authors who inspired me, I'm, I'm very grateful. And I think that we, we all owe them a debt uh, for the research that they did. And we're still feeding off that research now. Mm-hmm. You're right. We yeah. we most definitely are. Now, there's a question. Any photos of any of your ancestors? And I know there's one photo that's kind of rotating right now, and it's a photo that, Michael, you sent. So tell mm-hmm. us about that photo. Well, the photo that I provided you with is Nell, Good- Nell Goodler Wilson. Um, she must have been around the age of 25, um, and that was probably somewhere around the 1920s uh, okay. when that photo was taken. And what about what the others? Do you all have old photos? Hi, this is Angela. Yes, I was able to locate some. I talked to... Um, an aunt who had some older photos, and I was able to find one photo of Dicey, which I found very interesting. Um, I don't know the time that it was captured. It didn't have anything written on the back. You know, back in the day, everyone would write date and time and all of that to be able to identify. But um, it looks as if it's probably in the 20s based on the clothing that she had and the hat that she had on. Um, So it did my heart good to see that um, even though a lot of oral history was lost and a lot of things have kind of, you know, been dismissed and and kept under wraps, I was able to see, you know, what she looks like. And it was amazing because I was like, wow, this was the last of my relatives that was on a plantation. So it was heartwarming. And I did share that with uh, Michael and Teresa as well. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, any closing remarks before we close out? Well, thanks for bringing us together. 
<laughs> yes, and thanks thank to you, you, Michael. Thank you so much for You're the us. moving agent here, and uh, and uh, thanks, cousin Michael. Thanks a lot. <laughs> thank you, thank you, everyone. It was a joy. Well, yes. Okay. Well, a special thanks to all of you for sharing this uh, exciting story with us tonight. And I want everyone to remember that a mind to stay is out there. White Plantation, Black Homeland by Dr. Sidney Nathan. So once you read this book, you'll probably start going and checking to see if your ancestors' names are in this book and you're matching someone with the DNA. I want you all to remember your ancestors' left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and Afrogenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sewell-Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and co-host, Patricia Glover Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night, Sid. Good night. We did it.